And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Please pray with me. Dear God, in he- Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning. We trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll see how long my voice holds out this morning. I've got my water up here. I feel like a speaker at a major conference. You know, I need my water. I should, I should uh, take my glasses off and gesture with them. So, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Is somebody getting married today? I went back through my files and realized something pretty wild. I have, in all the years I've been preaching, I have never preached on these famous lines except at weddings. Never once have I preached on this, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, except at a wedding. Today I'm going to rectify that situation. Today you're going to get sort of the extended version of my traditional wedding sermon, sort of the director's cut if you will. And I'm going to start by talking about just one verse in this chapter, one of the ones actually that we usually just sort of read right over to get to the nice love stuff. But then at the end we will um, broaden out and talk about the whole chapter as a whole. So the verse that I want to focus on, at least at the beginning, is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2. And it says this, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I feel like this verse speaks profoundly to a deep desire that we all share, the, the desire to have an identity, to be someone, to have value, to be something, to make a name for ourselves, to matter. I remember one summer, I was driving across the United States with my father. I had um, purchased a vehicle in Virginia, and I, was, I had to get the car to school in Arizona. So my father and I drove, and he um, f- f- flew home after it was over. And we thought that a fun thing to do, a little side trip, would be to drive through um, Hope, Arkansas. It was sort of on the way, and it was the birthplace of Bill Clinton, who was president at the time. And so we thought that that would be sort of an interesting town to see. And so as we approached Hope, I, um, I saw a sign on the side of the freeway sort of off in the distance, and I couldn't really read it. And it was, you know, close enough that I thought I ought to be able to read it, so I wasn't sure what was going on. And as we got closer, I finally realized that the sign said, Hope, Arkansas, home of President Bill Clinton. And I also realized why I had had trouble reading it. It was so riddled with bullet holes that the words were almost completely illegible. Since then, whenever I go home to visit my parents, I drive into the town where I'm from. I'm always sort of hopeful that somebody has thought to put up a sign. You know, welcome to Falls Church, Virginia, home of Nick Land. It's not there yet, but, you know, one day, maybe. Sort of, you know, just like the sign outside of Hope, Arkansas, but without the bullet holes. But I think that 
what this, this speaks to our urge to matter, to be someone, to be something, to have a legacy of some sort. Um, and our verse that I just read for you, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries, if I have all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. Now, if there was ever a list of accomplishments that you would think warranted a sign outside your hometown, this is it, right? Prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries, having all knowledge, the ability to move mountains. Welcome to Falls Church, home of Nick Lannon, mover of mountains. That has a nice ring to it. But Paul says that even if we have all that stuff, even if our list of accomplishments is so great, if we don't have love, he says you are nothing. Notice the words, more deeply damaging than you have nothing, he says you are nothing. In order to be someone, in order to feel like you are anything, you've got to feel loved. You've got to have Love love makes us who we are. And we all know this to be true. This is why all the accolades of our normal lives feel so empty when we don't feel loved at the same time. So, of course, we find ourselves willing to do anything to be loved. Meatloaf was lying. He said, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. He would do that too, right? We would do anything for love. Consider Manti Teo, the... Notre Dame football player who fell in love with a girl he'd never met and who it turned out didn't even exist. It just proves that we will do anything, believe anything, if we feel like at the other end of the line there's someone who loves us. We will do anything for love, even that. What about God? Do we feel loved by God? We feel like we do anything to get God's love. I have a friend who asked his uh, pre-teenage daughter what she thought God's attitude toward her was. And she said, disappointed. And I feel like as much as we say God is love and we say to one another that God loves us, I feel like a lot of us feel underneath that surface layer a lot like this young girl. When we really think about what does God's attitude toward me feel like, we might think that he's disappointed. And I think the reason a lot of us feel that way is we imagine that love is reciprocal, right? That love is a two-way street. We, in order to get love... To be loved, we have to give love first. Right? That's how we think things work. You have to give to get. God loves those who love him and who love others, right? Does anybody here watch The Amazing Race? Does anybody even know what that is? Okay, I see a few hands, but I'll still explain um, for those of you who are too good for reality TV. Um, The Amazing Race is a reality television show, and it features... Features teams of two, except for one ill-advised season where it was families of four. Um, but mostly, it, 
features teams of two sort of racing around the world. They're solving clues and, and um, c- c- completing challenges. The idea is whoever sort of gets to the end of the Amazing Race first wins a million dollars. I haven't myself actually watched the show in several years, but I used to be a devotee of the Amazing Race, and one team, one pair of people has stuck with me in my brain ever since I watched the show many years ago now. I think they're in like season 18 or something. But way back, maybe season 3 or something, there was a boyfriend-girlfriend team uh, named Ron and Kelly. Ron was a former prisoner of war in Iraq, and Kelly was a former beauty pageant winner, sort of all-American apple pie folks. And at the beginning of one episode of The Amazing Race, the producers are interviewing Kelly, sort of about you know, what the upcoming day will hold. And she tells the camera, and therefore you know, all the millions of us at home watching, that when she woke up that morning, she read the love chapter in the Bible, the very reading that we have before us this morning, 1 Corinthians 13. Instead of the word love, though, she said, she put her name in, like Kelly is patient, Kelly is kind, and so on. And she said that she was going to try to be those things to Ron, her boyfriend, that day on The Amazing Race. Now, the race can get a little tense, and sometimes team members can get a little frustrated with one another. And at one point, near the end of the day, Kelly ended up getting so annoyed with Ron that she called him, this, these are her words, not mine, a redneck piece of trash. This, of course, is in front of the same millions of people that she had just told that morning about how she had read the love chapter in Scripture and she was going to be patient and kind, etc., Now, I'm not from the South, or not really, but Ron was. And I could tell from his reaction that redneck piece of trash was not an expression of love, (laughs) at least not to him. So Kelly's got a problem, right? She's, there's a disconnect for Kelly between what she wants to do and what she's actually doing, her desire to show love and her ability to show love. And we would think, as I'm sure she did, that there's no way she's getting love in return, right? This is, this is supposed to be a two-way street. You call me a redneck piece of trash, I'm going to call you something, too. And my first instinct upon hearing those words, redneck piece of trash, come out of her mouth was, oh, no, what a horrible Christian example. You know, yet another Christian on TV ruining it for the rest of us. She told everyone she's reading the Bible, and now she's saying this awful, awful thing. But I hope that Kelly from The Amazing Race sticks with you in the same way that she stuck with me, because though she may not be a great Christian example, she is a perfect example of a Christian. Kelly's problem is a beautiful picture of the human problem, right? Her plan was great. She wanted to love Ron. She went to the Bible to find out how to love. She read the love chapter and she thought, that's what love looks like, so that's what I'll do. Kelly wanted to love Ron that day, but Kelly couldn't hold to her plan. 
Everything seemed to be right in line. She wanted to do what was right. She went to the right source. She had the right plan, but she couldn't actually do it. Kelly had a problem. And we have a problem, too. Our plan is great. We know what we're supposed to do, and we even want to do it. We know we're supposed to love. We even want to love. And we read the love chapter to find out how. But like Kelly, we can't hold to our plan. We are impatient with our in-laws. We are unkind to the people we work with. We are angry at friends, hateful of enemies. All too often, we find ourselves to be the opposite of the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. We find ourselves to be impatient, unkind, envious, boastful, and rude. And all the other things that don't look like love. And so over time, we begin to assume that because we're not very good at giving love, no one's going to love us back. Because we don't show love very well, we assume that no one's going to show love to us. Either. But look at some of the other descriptions that St. Paul uses for love. He says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, if you ever needed any proof that this description of love in the love chapter was beyond our ability to uphold, here you have it. If we're like Kelly, and we are, with a good plan that we just can't hold to, reading this description of love as a standard we ought to achieve will crush us. Be patient. Be kind. Well, sometimes. Don't be envious or boastful. Well, Maybe when, maybe for a minute. But then, bear all things. Endure all things. If we think about it too much, it makes us wonder if we're Christians at all. We feel so defeated when we look at our lives and realize how little we love. The truth, though, the wonderful truth, is that the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, this piece of scripture is not giving us a standard to live up to. It describes what love is really like. In other words, it describes the love of God, not of us. We don't love like this, but God does. Thank God he offers us so much more than standards that we have to live up to. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Since we have such trouble loving, since we so often don't love, God does it himself. Check out 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is John's first letter, and he's talking about love too. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now there's a $3 word for you, propitiation. And 
I was tempted to sort of use a synonym, you know, to use a less powerful word that was easier to understand, but propitiation is such a great word. Propitiation refers to something that reconciles a person back to someone who has a grievance with them. Right? John says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son for us to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation takes the grievance away and restores the relationship. God has a grievance with us, much like Ron had a grievance with Kelly. And we don't love. But the reason that we say God is love is that He loves us who don't love. And He loves us when we don't love. And He offers His Son as a propitiation to take away the grievance and restore the relationship. Now that word, that $3 word, propitiation, demands that we read the love chapter not as a standard for us to live up to, but as a celebratory description of God's love for us. God is patient. God is kind. God endures all things. God hopes all things. Propitiation is the thing that makes being a Christian Less about trying to live up to the standards we find in Scripture and more about being a person who realizes the amazing and complete work of Christ on the cross. That's what a Christian is, actually. A Christian is not someone who does something. A Christian is someone who acknowledges something that has already been done. A Christian is not someone who loves but someone who is beloved. Like Kelly on The Amazing Race, we can't hold to our good plans. Our lives quickly spin out of our control. In a matter of minutes, we go from, I will be patient with my loved ones, to calling them redneck pieces of trash. But just when everything seems to be falling apart, and when we feel worst at loving each other, much less loving God, It is the propitiation, that idea of resolving a grievance and reconciling the relationship, the propitiation of Jesus Christ who gave us his love when we did not love, who loves us first even when we are unloving and unlovable, who is in his person the reason that God loves us. Amen.